Welcome to the Platform to Perform podcast, the podcast for athletes, coaches, and anyone looking to perform at their highest level. If performance is your goal, we aim to provide you with a platform to perform. I'm your host as always, Todd Davidson, and on episode 33 of the Platform to Perform podcast, I'm delighted to be joined by the author of Strength and Conditioning for Combat Sports, Yas Parr. How are you doing today, Yas? Good, mate. Good. It's it's uh, 20 past 10 where I am in the morning and the weather's good, so can't complain. Excellent. That's what I like, a positive attitude, positive attitude. <laughs> First uh, question to kick things off, uh, why do you do what you do? Because um, uh, it's something that I'm good at, you know, not not just the, not the academic side as much as I am at the actual practical side. So, I mean... When I was younger, I found out about jobs that paid a lot of money and tried to do training for them. And because I wasn't really into them, then it was hard for me to to learn those things. And then I looked at I looked at what I actually enjoy reading and learning about where there's no pressure because I enjoy it. And it was always training. So I became a stre- uh, I became a personal trainer. Then after nine years, I transitioned to a strength and conditioning coach because. To be honest, my personality doesn't really suit so much um, the people who can't do stuff. So I need, so I needed to train athletes. I struggle to have patience for people who can't do like a bodyweight squat, bodyweight split squat, whatever. <laughs> I quite like the honesty there. I just want to dig in a little deeper just because I was having a chat with uh, a friend of mine who he's a football coach, but I was having a little rant to him, I guess, when some personal trainers will say, oh, I'll do personal training and I do strength and conditioning. And I always think to myself, okay, so I understand that you might be, you might assume that personal training equals, I don't know, fat loss, muscle building, and strength and conditioning is sports performance. Um, But I always think to myself, how does that change the principles of training or how you design a program? Um, But if you feel like there are any differences or indeed similarities, what would you say that those are? Um, there are obviously there's some really good personal trainers um, that have been around a long time and they're and they're and they're educators and they they can train anybody to do anything. People like um, Nick Tominello or Ben Bruno, so those are high level, but they're still classed as personal trainers. But in my opinion, and from what I've seen over the years, is 99% of personal trainers don't really know anything. So. It's, it's because you can, it's, it's hard to differentiate if you don't know between someone who's, who's got, say, 20, 30 certifications and 20 years experience, but they're still classed as a personal trainer compared to somebody who's done a, a weekend course because they can both call themselves personal trainer. So for me, there are not many similarities. Apart, I would say there can't be many st- real strength and conditioning coaches who can't tra- uh, train general population but there are very few personal trainers you could train athletes, you know? Yeah, no, I think oh, that's pretty spawn. I like that, actually. I've not heard it described in that way. Because um, a lot of times, as I said, I kind of feel like, I don't know what this, in fact, I don't know what the situation is in America, but currently here in the UK, one of the frustrations from strength and conditioning coaches is that to call yourself a strength and conditioning coach is not actually a protected term whereas yeah, yeah. over here if you were to cause you call yourself a physiotherapist that is a protected term 
and you can't just decide, oh, I'm doing physiotherapy out of my garage or whatever. Uh, is that the case in America or have they got it? No, I think I think the only place that has that really down well is is Australia. Whereas even if you you have to be have qualifications that say you're a strength and conditioning coach. And if you're an employer, like a team, and you're looking for a strength and conditioning coach, they have to be um, certified from the Australian Strength and Conditioning Association. And there are also, um, for each tier, there's a minimum wage as well in Australia. Whereas America is the same as same as uh, the UK. It's like everywhere, everywhere you look, these personal trainers that call themselves strength and conditioning coaches. Or they do a circuit, they do a little circuit training class, and they'll call it a strength and conditioning class. Or, you know what I mean? So it's just the same here, and that's it. Pisses me off because like the difference between a doc, say a difference between a strength and conditioning coach and just a standard personal trainer is like the difference between a doctor and a doctor's receptionist. You know, they're nothing like each other. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, and it's one of those where uh, it's almost like because you use similar tools you get classified as the same thing and again i don't want to make this whole podcast about it but i thought it was interesting how you said obviously you started off as a pt and now you've transitioned more into the performance environment so i was just intrigued on your thoughts on that and the first question i had diving deeper into the podcast I, i'm not sure whether i've uh, read this from your book or whether it's in one of your blogs um, but the question is how can a fighter know that they're dealing with a proper strength and conditioning coach as opposed to for example someone who uses it as a marketing tool and if you were to advise a fighter in this respect would there be any red flags that you would tell them to look for if they're trying to establish whether or not they're working with a strength and conditioning coach as opposed to someone who is I suppose just going to be a go for the burn and you know if you puke it's a effective right. session type of thing um what I would say is I would imagine that most most fighters, if they're looking for somebody, they're going to look for somebody who has experience with training fighters. So, but for me, I would be the opposite because I don't care. I don't care if someone's trained fighters or not because they could be just a personal trainer who is lucky enough to get a job in a top gym. So I would, for me, it would be 10 times better, so far more important to find someone who I know has qualifications in strength and conditioning even if they've never trained a fighter so if I was I would be more interested in who they've trained to a high level that's not a fighter because then you know that they can train people to be stronger and faster and they haven't just um, been lucky enough to get a job working with some top level fighters you know because I could if I if I was a low level personal trainer and uh, I, I was lucky enough to get a job at somewhere like wildcard I could say, oh, yeah, I train Pacquiao, I train all these other world champions, but it doesn't mean that I've made them better. It just means that I was lucky enough to get the opportunity. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, and I, I can't remember, again, whose uh, coach's quote I'm stealing, but they say, you know, don't just assume that high-level athlete means it's a high-level S&C coach. Like, look at where they started with and how they've got the most out of what they've worked with. Even if you've taken someone who, like, for example, I've worked with... Uh, some kids whose you know motor skills aren't the best i had a child the other day who uh was scared of his own pass in basketball throwing it against the wall and i'm like right my job is still to make him better and by the end of the year i hope that someone would you know he can join in a session and not look out of place and for me that'll be a marker of how good i am as a coach rather than just saying yeah. oh 
well, he can't do it, and therefore you you know give me some tools to work with. But the the power of association in marketing is definitely uh, it's definitely a hard thing to get your head around in terms of not just assuming causation and correlation, um, but equally for S and C coaches trying to market themselves, it's also a hard thing to stay away from if it's going to work in your favor. So yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, and also if you look at things like Instagram, a lot of people, they look at, a lot, a lot of people who are on there, they sell themselves by just posting, posting endless pictures of their own apps. Whereas if, if you're working with somebody who's successful, then they don't, they don't care. I mean, obviously you, they want you to look like you're bothered about your health and that you do train, but they don't care about what you can do for yourself. They care about what you can do for them, you know, so like I say, there's all these there's all these people all over Instagram, and if you're looking for somebody, you need to know, you need to be able to see uh, what they've done, who they got results with, and and some examples. Rather, no one cares about pictures of your abs. You know what I mean? That doesn't mean you can do anything. Mm, yeah, and uh, does that yeah, make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, we could easily go down a whole another rabbit hole of. Uh, how you could easily manufacture said pictures but like you said it's not it's not about you it's about the athlete yeah exactly man and uh if we so you've almost touched on the red flags there as well if you've got someone's profile and it's more about them than who they're working with and that in itself is probably an issue as well yeah 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 i mean uh, obviously this year then people either can't post anything or they're posting stuff at home or they are posting pictures just of training the self because obviously because this year has been totally different and it's hard to if you even if your gym's open it's hard to get uh, a lot of people in there training so you know to get videos or photos of other people or whatever but like I say a lot of gyms are closed so the whole time we've been closed I've been having if I've, I haven't been posting much stuff but if I do it's usually me demonstrating an exercise or or writing writing something rather than somebody that I'm training yeah um, Depends on the, on the whole situation like it does this year, then it's different. Yeah, and to be fair, you might be onto something there as well. Like, you know, see what written content they've produced, not just, you know, anyone can make a photo look good. Any, like, you know, if I had a picture with, I don't know, let's say I bumped into Chisora or who, David Hay or whoever, and all of a sudden right. a photo, you can make that sound as, you can make that sound to be whatever you want it to be. Um, whereas you probably can't fool people in written context quite as easily. Yeah, 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 exactly, man. Because um, there's no, there's no fooling anyone what's actually happening if it's written compared to a photograph. Like you said, because you could, you could um, post that as being anything, like you're training them, or, or you're even like I don't know, you're involved, you're part of their circus. So it's obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I just, I just say, I just say it how it is. I don't um, have any filter for anything. No, I like that. And uh, if we just talk about the, that written, co- whilst we're on the subject of written content. Um, so one of the quotes I've got from your book, which I'd like to elaborate on, uh, you said there's a big difference between training a movement pattern that will carry over directly to a sport and simulation training, which involves imitation of a specific movement. Uh, so could you elaborate on what the differences between those two are and perhaps give uh, an example of either of those? Yeah, Um so obviously if you, when you're training you want to train um to be strong but then you also want to train which is a, 
if you were talking about movement patterns, you need to try and train to be strong also in the correct angles. So the right, the muscles that are needed for the job, but also the angles that are used. So that's obviously different to simulation, which is you're actually training a skill. So if you train, if you try and uh, train a skill with resistance, then you are altering a lot of things, you know, a recruitment pattern. And obviously um, some muscles are working more than they should and some muscles are, are not working as much as they should. So an example, say, for training a movement pattern would be, uh, say, inclined biochromial bench press for um, throwing a straight punch because of the angle of your body. And also, because you're going to be leaning forwards a little bit, it's like doing an inclined press because if, if you're... Sure. You would never punch somebody like this or push somebody like this. So the angle is more relevant to what you're doing in the sport. Same as if you was doing something like dips as a good transference to MMA for ground and pound, you know. So it's all about um, becoming strong, but also becoming strong in the correct angles that you're going to be using in your sport rather than imitating a skill. Just. Just before I knocked our audio off, uh, we were talking about punching with dumbbells um, and Jeffrey Chu mentioned that this might uh, set you off on a little bit of a rant. So just intrigued for your thoughts. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, most people know that I hate shadow boxing with dumbbells. I mean, I, shadow, I hate shadow boxing, um, anything like that, in water, with bands. But obviously dumbbells is my main pet hate. I am actually put a video about it on YouTube recently. Um, I hate it because um, people people think people say stuff like, "Well, when I shadow box with dumbbells, and then well, then when I put them down on a shadow box without them, I'm faster." Well, yeah, you are faster than you was when you had the dumbbells. But if you did it every day, you, if you did it every day and you got faster every day, how fast would you be after a month? You know what I mean? You'd be so, you'd be so. You, you needed to um, record something in slow motion to see your speed. And people, people aren't faster. It's like if you had uh, Usain Bolt and he wanted to get faster, he wouldn't start practicing hundred meters with ankle weights on. You know, so I hate it because it, I mean, first, first of all, it doesn't really doesn't make sense to me. But if we're going to look at it, um, what's wrong with it more technically is. There are a lot of muscles recruited that shouldn't be. Also, there's muscles recruited more than they should be, and there's muscles that should be recruited that are not. Uh, also, uh, posture changes. So what I'm talking about, uh, muscle recruitment, obviously there has to be the right recruitment pattern. But when uh, when you throw a punch, it's a, a tri triphasic contraction. So the agonist fire, then the antagonist fire, and the agonist fire again, all in this is all in a split second. But if you're using resistance, then that all goes down the toilet. And also, um, not only does are the punches slower, so if you're practicing a skill, if you like, like the, the saying goes, train so slow, be slow. So if you're practicing a skill, not only are you altering it, but you're also doing it slower, which is going to be a problem. And also, another reason why it doesn't make sense to me is if you're throwing straight punches, the force that you're displaying is uh, horizontal. And uh, if you're using a dumbbell, the resistance is vertical because of gravity. And also, the further the dumbbell uh, gets out from you, 
the more torque there is at the shoulder. So in a way, it's like the resistance is actually getting higher. So it changes posture even more um, the further your arm goes out from your body as well. Uh, does, does that make sense? I mean, that's pretty comprehensive for me. I mean, having actually been uh, hit in the head with a dumbbell that someone let go of when they were shadow boxing, that's another reason that I would say it's a stupid idea. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you could, that, that always puts the icing on the cake, something like that. I'm, uh, I'm hoping it's, uh, I've not confused uh, this from somebody else's book and said that it's in your book, because otherwise this might be a little bit awkward. Um, but I'm pretty sure it's your book where you talk about using eight ounce pace weights. Is that correct? Yeah. And um, I looked at it recently. I, was re- I actually read it recently. And in a way, if you read that, you might think that I'm recommending using eight ounce uh, pace weights to shadow boxing and I'm not what I am recommending is if you really need to do shadow boxing with dumbbells which no one should be then if you use pace weights then you're not using anything more than eight eight ounce gloves you know because they weigh the same but I still wouldn't recommend it because having a weight in your hand is not the same as having it distributed all the way around your hand so it's like the difference between picking up uh, an empty barbell 20 key bar and also uh, comparing that to picking up a 20p dumbbell, they both weigh the same, but it's, it feels totally different. So that's all, that's all uh, I meant by that is if you're going to use something, then it needs to be so light that it doesn't affect, um, doesn't affect technique because it's the same, same weight as uh, just eight ounce gloves. <laughs> Funny enough, when I, uh, when I read that in your book, I literally, the question I typed, I thought, oh, got him in a corner now. I was like, why not use eight ounce gloves? But uh, yeah, that clears it up perfectly. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I'm not, sorry, go on. No, I was going to say, um, I'm pretty sure it's, uh, there's a guy called Don Hedrick who he's uh, niche, if you will, is uh, strength conditioning for Muay Thai, but he makes oh, uh, yeah. He makes a similar argument in the sense of if you're going to do underweight or overweight training, if indeed that's what your aim is, then he says, you know, a couple of ounces either side of your competition weight is probably fine. But let's not, you know, as soon as you have a two kilo glove, three kilo glove or my favorite uh, is when I was boxing the club that we trained at. It's like, right, I might be using, say, a two kilo dumbbell and then the sort of golden boy of the gym, he would use three because he was much stronger. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. If it's going to be um, different to what you would use in competition, it needs to be fractional. It needs to be tiny. Yeah, and I know Don, he's, he's, he's really good. Yeah, and uh, it's funny because I think uh, this when I used to box, you'd, uh, it's funny because you'd think nothing of where the shadow boxing would say two or three kilos, but then you put the 18-ounce gloves on to spar and you think, God, these are so heavy. And it's like, but nobody <laughs> asked the question about the dumbbells. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, look, look at him, man. If you're the what three key dumbbell, what's that like seven seven pound or something? I'm I've been over in America so long now that that all obviously every, I'm used to everything being in pound. But yes, yeah, that's, that's way too heavy. It's way too heavy. So what would you what would you recommend then as a uh, productive or if we come away from the skill acquisition then? Um, what would you recommend as an alternative if we're looking I mean, I'm I'm reluctant to use the term sport specific, um, but let's say if we're looking to develop specific physical capabilities relative to the punch, then what kind of exercises might you use instead of, say, punching with dumbbells? Um, see, punching with dumbbells is normally done. Uh, it's normally 
boxing trainers who don't really know about strength and conditioning who get fighters to do that. And then it's been going on so long that um, everyone just sees it as normal and something that improves things. But I think if you're going to be if you're going to train to be strong or strong and fast combined, so power, then that's what you need to train. Messing around with because uh, people, if you ask somebody, they say, "Oh, it's resistance training," but it's not, though, is it? It's not. It's just it's too it's too heavy in regards to that. If you're shadow boxing with dumbbells, it ruins technique. But it's not heavy enough because dumbbells that weigh two, three key, they're not heavy enough to make you stronger in any way. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah, so it's um, the basics are, I say 80, 80, 90% of, of it is just training to make people stronger and more athletic. That's why I was saying if, you, if you're a fighter and you're looking for a strength and conditioning coach, it's much better to get somebody who has qualifications in strength and conditioning and has proven history of training different kinds of athletes to be stronger and faster and to become champions than it is than it is to try and find somebody who's not got those qualifications and they could have a 10, 10 top fighters on the resume, but that doesn't mean anything, you know? So uh, have I gone off Have I gone off on a tangent too? Uh, maybe, <laughs> maybe a smidge. I guess where I was trying to go is, okay, what if somebody says, ah, oh. so, um, I mean, you, you may disagree with this, which is absolutely fine, but I would argue, for example, a medicine ball punch is... Yeah yes it's not going to develop the skill of punching but now you're moving more towards it is more specific because there is an accelerative phase um you can load it obviously in a similar stance it's not going to be prone to the movement pattern breaking down due to fatigue compared to say i don't know shallow boxing a two minute round um so i guess that was where i was trying to corner you with the question in terms of what you would you do instead Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm a big fan of uh, doing that with medicine ball. So like a punch pass against the wall. Yeah, I'm a big fan of that. But the thing is, it needs to not be too heavy. Because mm. I would say um, it needs to be it needs to be really light because it still needs to be explosive. So the good thing about doing it uh, with a medicine ball, especially if you, I'd say, a max 10% lean body weight, so 10% or less, is that, you're you're still able to do the um, the movement explosively, and also there's still it doesn't using a medicine ball doesn't uh, hinder the decelerators of the joint to um, to do their job, you know. So so you still you still need the external rotators of the shoulder to to control the the shoulder at end range. It's totally different to punching with dumbbells or a band. So I do like medicine ball stuff, providing you're not too, the balls are not too heavy. Yeah, and it's funny because I think even, I mean, uh, anybody who knows me in training conditioning circles know that I love just nitpicking when it comes to what I perceive to be as arbitrary figures that people have plucked from someone. I think if you've ever like held a seven kilo, like for example, if I weigh 75, you ever tried to throw a 7.5 kilo medicine ball? Like even with like as a power lift, what well, a boxer turned power lifter now, like <laughs> that's pretty heavy. Like oh, yeah. there's, yeah. there's that's why I, well, um, I did say lean mass rather than total mass as well. But yeah, that's you try, yeah. Seven, seven and a half kilo medicine ball. It's heavy. Yeah. There's a, there's a great, great video. If anyone's interested of uh, Eddie Hall taking the mick and saying he's going to do an NFL combine 
and he launches a 10 kilo medicine ball. Bearing in mind, Eddie Hall's, uh, I think now he's come down to 163 kilos and he's, I mean, I mean, I don't want to use the word lean, but leaner. And he launches this 10 kilo medicine ball halfway across the gym, which is impressive. But you think, Christ, if he's a strong, well, one of the strongest men on the planet and he's yeah. using a 10, then uh, maybe your 10 kilos needs to come right down. Exactly. It's, a, it's training to fight, isn't it? Is yeah. It, it, yeah. I mean, a, a I mean, <laughs> if we just sidetrack a little, it's one of those where, like, you know, more power to him. If that's what he wants to do, then good luck to him. But, like, I saw something on Instagram which summed up my sort of thoughts on a lot of things on Instagram. And it was like, look at Eddie Hall's insane power. And I was like, yeah, you can see the punch coming about three weeks before it's landed. Yeah. I would love to train him, but it's obviously it all depends whether, because obviously he's, he's, he's top tier of what he does. So it's whether he thinks that somebody else would be able to train him better than he could train himself. Mm. But I mean, yeah. I mean, and, and I mean, watching them two, it would be funny anyway, because when you have that much hypertrophy, it has a big, big negative effect on technique, you know? So it would be funny because their elbows would be out here. They wouldn't be able to, you wouldn't be able to do most of the things with the right technique or what you're supposed to be able to. It would be hard for them to keep their elbows in without being tense, which yeah. Yeah, I find, yeah, I find normal guys, if they train too much, especially too much chest, they can't have good technique without forcefully bringing their arms in. And then uh, obviously then there's a lot more muscle uh, being tense when it should be relaxed which is, then is a problem yeah and if you I mean just uh, going off on that tangent a little bit more anyone who's looked at the research the elite level sprinters tend to be better at being able to relax um, quickly just like uh, this sort of snap of a boxer's punch I mean a friend of mine yeah. sent me a video of uh, Steffi Cohen which for anyone listening has deadlifted four times body weight and uh, he's able of doing some pretty impressive stuff um but i saw a video of her on the pads and still pretty impressive um but a lot lot slower than what you'd expect females of around that weight to be able to punch but it, yeah, it, yeah. it's also funny on that tangent that boxers will look at the likes of steffi cohen look at the likes of eddie hall two of the strongest people in the world um and somehow think that doing three sets of eight once a week is going to turn them into uh powerlifters overnight yeah, yeah yeah exactly yeah and it's uh i mean obviously strength is the foundation if you only get stronger you're going to get better because you need that um strength base to be able to um train it to be able to display it faster so you need the strength base to be able to uh, train power but you can be really strong but if you don't ever train to be to, to do the movement faster it's always going to be slow so it doesn't matter how, how strong you are I was on a course one time and there'd been a guy on there who could squat 600 pounds. But when they tested bar speed of him squatting the empty bar, he was the slowest out of everybody. And he was he could squat miles more than everybody, you know? Yeah, I had a, uh, a chap I used to, I was interning at um, the same place at the same time. And he had a similar issue. He could squat 200 kilos, weighed like 10 kilos more than I did. And he would openly mock himself that 60 kilos would move like toast. And his eyes rubbish, but he'd been trained as a powerlifter for so long. It's so easy not to have that intent. Um, I think even when you're on the pads on boxing, like all of a sudden someone shouts verbal encouragement and suddenly you get that extra 10% or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just I used to train this guy and his sister came over from South Africa and uh, she was always doing like 100K runs and stuff. 
So he entered him. He, he entered her and him in. Uh, I don't know if it was a five k or a ten k. And he's there. He said he's there thinking she's going to smash it. She's going to easy beat everybody. And he said she she's running at the pace of like a hundred year old because that's the only pace that she knew how to run at because because she was used to running a hundred key. You can't run fast, you know. Yeah. So and- Sorry, go on. And I was just going to say, it's funny how, and this is kind of where I'm just going to segue into anyway, it's funny how boxers or boxing coaches so often confuse volume and intensity and somehow you end up in this sort of no man's land. So the same way that punching with a two or three kilo dumbbell isn't heavy enough to make you stronger and isn't light enough to make you faster, you get a lot of boxers conditioning themselves in this sort of no man's land where it's, high enough intensity to fatigue them for the subsequent sessions in the next day but yeah. too low intensity to actually improve their sort of ceiling um but yeah when it comes to uh conditioning fighters uh what kind of track athlete would you think would best represent a boxer and why track athlete yeah as in uh running athlete um as far as what's needed in the way of like um, cardio conditioning, I'd say uh, eight hundred meters. Yeah, that's that's something I've seen that's been banded out quite a bit. I, to be honest, I'd I'd quite agree. And having seen some of the times that the GB boxers were putting up for eight hundred meters, I mean, it's uh, it was pretty good. I mean, my favorite favorite session I saw whilst I was there was um, they did a timed eight hundred meters and the head S&C coach brought out 207 on a um a4 piece of paper because they said look this is Jess this is Jess Karenis's record I want you to try and beat it and in my head I was trying to work out how impressive that was from for example it was a 200 meter track didn't have blocks obviously you've never been trained to run apart from speed based stuff in their warm-ups um and a couple of the lads did beat it and got like 206 to uh oh. so yeah and it's one of those where you're like, Jesus, these are very supremely conditioned athletes. That's the reason why I asked the uh, question, because it's so easy when you say something like aerobic base as a strength and conditioning coach and a boxer or a boxing coach hears, OK, so we need long, slow distance runs. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, yeah, I put in my book um, that as long as someone's, if you can see uh, you're tracking everything, you can see that somebody has actually become stronger and faster. If they can do 800 in less than two and a half minutes, then they're pretty much ready to go, you know? Yeah, and I think 800 is a, it's a nice, uh, it's a nice middle zone, dis- middle zone's the wrong word, but I mean, you've got to have enough explosiveness in you to clock that sort of time. Um, but equally, you've still got to have enough of an aerobic engine on you to not die after 200 meters. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's it. It's it's probably the hardest race to run because it's it's long in a way, but you have to sprint it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. And to be fair, I even like just as a test of um, for boxers, especially if you're used to doing three minute rounds. Just for example, how far can you go around a track in three minutes? Like because yeah. you're going to have to improve so many different qualities to make that time come down. That it's just basically an overall measure of how much work you can do in three minutes which is probably about as sports specific dare i use the word as you're gonna get yeah yeah yeah, exactly man because like i say well like we, we both know there's not that many things that are sports specific in a gym 
you know i mean you if you if you concentrate on making someone stronger and more athletic then like i said earlier in my opinion you're 80 to 90 percent there and then it's just little things of what's more relevant to the athlete that you're training to improve them that little bit more on top of that which is ironic because going back to your um thoughts earlier about looking up a strength conditioning coach and whether they're um whether it's appropriate for them to train you. I think a lot of what we see on social media is kind of 10 to 20% of what a training program might be. But because for example, it's so much easier to, I guess, sell something like, I don't know, you see a boxer punching, throwing a med ball and it looks like a punch and you're like, Oh yeah, this, this looks great. This is really quote unquote sports specific. Um, But what you don't see is for example, I don't know, back squats to develop leg strength or, jumping to develop explosive power in the legs when actually especially if you haven't got any snc background it's difficult to i guess see the wood uh, wood through the trees yeah 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 because i mean how are you supposed to know especially if people look good yeah you know every, these days everything's an illusion on on social media so if every if if you're only if you only know like if your idea that something's good, if it if it just appears good from a photograph or whatever, then it's hard for you to distinguish what's really good and what's um, just fake social media stuff. Yeah, and I think the diff- the difficulty for a lot of people is they. I mean, if you've ever seen the drowning drowning Kruger effect, I think it's called, and it's like there's a dangerous amount of knowledge that some people have where it's they know enough, but they don't know what they don't know. Yeah, 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 exactly. And that, those are the hardest people for me to train a lot of the time. If they have um, if they have a little bit of knowledge, then it's hard, you know, because um, they might argue with, like, if I want them to do a split squat or a lunge and I want full range, then they'll still, they'll have a little bit of knowledge. So they'll be, they might just know the stuff like that's been out of date since the 90s about you shouldn't break parallel, your knee shouldn't come forwards, all that kind of stuff. And it's surprising how many people still thinks think that you know yeah i mean i had a guy in a gym um, a few months ago and i was squatting him because it was well it was the first warm-up set it was pretty fast and he's like no 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 you shouldn't squat down that fast it'll hurt your knees i was like what i was like, <laughs> and i was like T- tell me why that's the case and he's like, oh it's just bad for them isn't it i was like yeah but explain why and he's like, oh, it just is. And I was like, okay, right. And, you know, because because this guy had been training 15 years, it's almost like everyone believes everything he says because he's in good shape and because he's trained for so long. Right. Whereas, for example, someone like Mike Boyle says that strength and conditioning coaches, you shouldn't necessarily judge on how they look, just as we've uh, mentioned earlier. Because he, I think in his own in his own words, he looks like a 60-year-old person who works at a desk, but he can move well. And uh, his knowledge, if anyone's looked at his books or looked at his content, is through the roof. Yeah, yeah. I actually, um, strength and conditioning coach from uh, from the east side of Canada. I think he's in Quebec. I think he's in Montreal. Um, he was telling me one time when he worked in a commercial gym, there was a guy there. I can't remember the exact number, but he said the guy had some medical condition. So I'm guessing about the, the percentage, but he said that he couldn't get over 2% body fat so and he had to have an injection once a month off a doctor so he didn't die but because of that because he was so ripped then he had all these clients and there was loads of people on waiting lists to come and train with him and all that because they just assume 
that he looks like that because he knows what he's doing when actually it's because he had something wrong with him. <laughs> That's uh, it's like when we said uh, when we were saying earlier about don't just assume that because somebody's training high level boxer they definitely know their stuff. It's like when you see people, oh, but this program worked for this celebrity, and it's like, yeah, that celebrity was getting in shape for a film, so had to pump themselves full of a load of steroids. And I mean, yeah. I, the podcast I was listening to the other day was saying how. Sylvester Stallone when he was training for one of the Rocky movies um I think he was in his 40s at the time got caught with a load of testosterone on him and <laughs> he was at an airport and you think well oh, people like then you see these articles it's like train like Rocky and it's like yeah if you have his drug supplier then you'll probably do half all right exactly yeah it's funny when um obviously you have to respect bodybuilders because of the amount of work that they have to put in and how dedicated they are but you can't really look at the program or, or take advice from, from unless you're unless you're doing the same thing, from from a competitive bodybuilder who's who's using so much so much gear a day, that they can that they can train pretty badly and look really good. You know, I used to have a mate who um, he didn't know how to train. He used to train full body every day. He was big and he was ripped, and his his technique was really bad. But uh, he was on that much gear, though, that he could he could kind of do what he wanted and look good. Yeah, he's he looks that way in spite of what he does rather than because of what he does. Yeah, he looks that way because of all the needles he's having. But... <laughs> <laughs> if we just uh, dive back into the uh, conditioning stuff a little bit more. So what if we talk about making sure that when we say one thing, coaches hear what we mean rather than hearing their interpretation of what we mean. Um, what do you think then a, like you mentioned, for example, it's important to train both the aerobic and anaerobic systems. So we avoid gassing out, but we've still got the explosive power. Uh, what right. do you think that aerobic base building should look like for combat athletes? Um, well, most I would say, because, because um, typically the, the training of combat athletes is quite far behind. So most, uh, most have hammered their aerobic system that much that they should be aerobically fit and then they can they can start doing more anaerobic stuff so it's it's hard to find somebody who doesn't have a, a decent aerobic base unless they have been on the the hip stuff for a long time you know but i'm a, i'm a big fan of doing the aerobic base first so in my book i use the uh, 180 method by uh, dr maffeton and then when you have the aerobic base down, but I mean, that's what I like. If everything's measured and documented, then that's what I like. But obviously you can just be going out on long runs all the time and know that you're aerobically fit. But when it comes to the real training, because uh, aerobic base is so easily to maintain, you don't, it, it takes a, quite a long time to lose it. It's the thing that's lost, lost the, lost the, uh, sorry, lost last then that's when you can go on to the interval training and, and just do, if you really need to, like, I don't know, one little five-mile run a week or whatever. Just Usually, though, for me, that's more of a psychological benefit to the to the boxer, or I should say to the fighter, because that's what they're used to doing and it makes them happy. Yeah, and I think as strength and condition coaches, it's important that we and I've mentioned this a lot with my podcast with uh, Jeffrey Chu, that we don't just bulldoze our way in and assume, for example... Um, I was speaking to a chap who used to box out of the gym that I trained at and who's, well, he now coaches, he's 
wife is now an Olympian and he boxes professionally himself. But I had a conversation with him about a long distance run. And he said, look, it's just to clear my head before the fight. And it's such a low intensity for me that it doesn't impact on anything else. But it'd be right. so easy as we were talking about making assumptions of snapshots. It'd be so easy as a strength and conditioning coach to be like, you're going on a long run close to the fight. What are you doing? You don't know, you know, you don't know anything. And thinking yeah. that we think we know the reason why they do it just because we know the physical side of things. Yeah. It's like trying to, if someone has a, like it's their routine and they think that it's good luck for them having a certain meal on fight day or whatever, then it would be wrong to try and change that because psychologically it could affect them where them, if they, even if they've been eating healthy and doing what they're supposed to with the diet the whole time, then them having their pizza or whatever as their, as their lucky meal, it's not going to, it's not going to have a negative effect the same as it would if you stopped them from having it. Yeah. hundred percent. And I think the, the, when for example i've spoken to my coach uh, when i've been at powerlifting meets and we talk about the placebo effect and saying look the placebo effect is real like there's been studies to show how the brain changes based on your perception of whether a thing works or not and it does physiologically impact you and even if i mean i've seen stuff on back pain where they gave uh they gave them basically a placebo pill told them it's this new treatment and for most people it would work and people reported like massive improvements in their perception of pain, even what they were physically able to do. And then interestingly, four weeks in, they then told, they told half the group that actually you're on the placebo pill, even though both groups were. So one group thought, ah, oh, well, I missed the dummy pill. I've been on the real stuff, even though they weren't, which then further improved their reporting of positive measures. But even in the group who were told that basically they'd been lied to and they were on a placebo pill, they still reported improvements despite being told that what they're on was just useless. So it is a, it's massively powerful. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard to measure that, but there's no denying that, that it's, that it's true because you see it all the time, but that's, that's good, man. That's a good study. Yeah. It's a, I'm, I wish I could remember the name of it. It was, a, it was on BBC iPlayer over here in the UK. Biggest, I'm sure it was the biggest study of low back pain and the placebo effect at the time. Um, one thing you mentioned, uh, one thing that you mentioned in your book, which I think is topical with uh, Mike Tyson and Roy Jones uh, recent interview, and it's to do with the conditioning differences between uh, males and females. Now, anyone who's seen the interview with Roy Jones and Tyson, they're moaning saying, Oh, we don't want to do two rounds, two minute rounds, two minute rounds are for women. Um, but you discuss the physio- physiological differences between men and women and why actually women are probably better designed for those longer efforts. Do you want to elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, I mean, it's always weird to me because obviously my wife was a, a female boxer. So and she she hated it as well. But it's like women get treated differently. Um, like they're not they're not capable of doing three minute rounds when actually women would be more capable of doing longer rounds than men just because they're more suited to endurance stuff. You know, they're more, they're more aerobically efficient. That's why you can, you can give a woman the same exercises in a gym and as a man and they'll recover quicker. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, my, my missus case in point, I remember we had a a program, she programmed an AMRAP or as many reps as possible at something like 85%. And she went and got like 23 reps with it. I was like, this is ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's funny, man. 
Yeah. Um, so what if, for example, let's say, I don't know, you had, hypothetically speaking, you had a male fighter and a female fighter. And I don't know, for argument's sake, let's just say they're twins just for ease of context. Okay. What would, and I always talk about like what the big rocks are between male and women programs and what I suppose the little rocks are. How might those programs look different? Um, you know, I treat them. I treat them quite similar to each other, men and women. Especially, uh, I think the difference is I'm more when the woman is uh, less experienced. If it's a, if it's a woman who's who has a high training age, then she can pretty much train the same as a guy. She might recover quicker, but usually for what we do, um, we're using heavy heavy weights, heavy weights, uh, low reps anyway, because it's very rare that I, I train a fighter who needs to put on a load of muscle. So, so in that case, they're all like the, the rest are a lot long, long, hang on, getting my mouth, getting my words mixed up, but the rest are quite long anyway. Um, the main difference is for me, tra- training females is the, is the hormonal stuff. So when, when they get the period, so some, it doesn't affect them at all. Others it'll make them feel weak. Others it, they what they'll still have strength, but they'll get but they'll get tired quicker. So that's the main differences for me is to, is to do with the hormones more than actually what they're capable of doing in the gym. Because like I said, especially once the women are at a higher training age. So when I used to train my uh, wife, I used to have a training. I used to train her like a guy. She doing like she never did more than five reps. She got really strong, but she actually got. Um, lighter as well so she got stronger and lighter rather than people a lot of people if they don't know about training especially a lot of old school boxing trainers they just assume that if you're going to lift weights that you're going to do bodybuilding and then there's going to be problems with uh lack of mobility too much muscle so technique goes down the toilet whereas as you know um using heavier weights low reps just makes you as, as strong like a monster it doesn't make you like a bodybuilder yeah and i like what you said there because i think um in a in a previous blog and previous podcast i've done with about youth female athletes saying that look yes there are going to be differences for example the uh, menstrual cycle being one of them but actually once they are well trained then the programs all look pretty much the same whereas if you've got a youth female athlete then pound for pound during puberty they're probably going to be weaker than a male athlete but hypothetically if they started training when they should have done and i'd argue that should be two years earlier than what boys would start resistance training then yeah. there's no reason why those differences can't be mitigated yeah exactly and the, and the skill windows and the, the speed windows also as well the females is a little bit earlier than males yeah you know yeah so i mean if i was training if i was training my own kids then i would obviously i, I kind of know already even though i haven't got any kids know exactly what i'm going to be doing like years years in advance and there's certain uh, windows, ages where I would focus mainly on either uh, speed acquisition or skill acquisition. And like we said, uh, females is normally at a younger age than males. Yeah, I mean, I always, think, I always think selfishly again, even though I've not got kids, uh, kids of my own. But I think, oh, if you had a, if you, I was going to say, if you had a female athlete, if you had a daughter, uh, the <laughs> the talent pool, in theory, could potentially be smaller. So I'm thinking, oh well physiologically when a girl well girls and boys prior to puberty are the same physiologically so if you could get your daughter just as strong as a boy pre-puberty then you're probably going to get uh you're probably going to have a daughter who 
physically can still compete with boys for as long as possible. I think the yeah, longer that definitely. you can do that, the more you're going to overload the skill just by nature, that it's probably going to be at a higher intensity or higher strength levels if we just take boxing as an example. And yeah. it's it, for me, it's going to help massively with skill acquisition, as you've said. And when puberty does kick in, you can hopefully limit those differences. Yeah, surely the, the differences would be smaller. The only um, issue that you might have is uh, obviously you want you want a, a base of strength there as good as as good as possible. But if you if you made your kids so physically superior that it was easy for them to beat other kids who might be technically better, then you're gonna be um, you're gonna retard skill acquisition a little bit. So they obviously you want to train them, but you want to try and make it so they're not so physically superior that it stops them from getting better technically. Because obviously then when it comes to being older then they're going to be the ones that are not as good because they didn't get that base of uh, decent technique. It was just concentrating on strength. So does that make sense? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. It actually leads into, I mean, I know I mentioned off air that I had some sort of any other business questions that didn't slot neatly into the topics I had planned. Um, But one of the things I would like your opinion on is biobanding potentially and it's use in combat sports for youth athletes. So anyone who doesn't know what biobanding is, it basically means that rather than kids um, competing in their chronological age relative to sports, so you might have, I don't know, an under-11s football team, um, they would compete in their biological age. So you might have kids who get their growth spurt early, so they might be, say, 14, but biologically they're 18. Uh, typically it's been done in football. I think it's been done in rugby as well. Um, right. I'm not aware if it's been done in combat sports, but what do you think about potentially biobanding in combat sports? Or do you think that would just make matchmaking far too difficult if you've got to make make the match on weight and biological age? Um, I don't know. I think it's I think it's good to do biobanding, but uh, within reason, you know, there can't be there can't be uh, too much difference. So, for example, um, when my, uh, at our gym, there's a kid who, who came in and he was 13 and he was six foot five and 250 pounds, so like 120 key. So you can't really, it's, it's, that's, a, that's an, um, a strange situation because you can't put him with kids his own age, really. You can, as far as learning goes, but any kind of physical stuff between them, you can't. But then you can't put him against someone who's a lot older but weighs the same kind of weight as him because he's still a kid. Mm. you know what i mean but obviously that's that's a freak being that kind of size at 13 years old so but i think yeah well i think within the the age group is a year um age difference is a year or two then biobanding definitely because i mean we're talking chronological age a year or two and biobanding because if you can find someone who's biologically similar then they're more evenly matched than someone who's not but they're the same age yeah and matchmaking in boxing even i mean on amateur scene i would argue it's even harder than the pros because you could have for example an a 12 year old kid who's boxed since he was four but has had only a couple of skills bouts but technically has got eight years of experience versus a kid who's 12 who's had 10 bouts but has been boxing for a year and it just muddies the water massively Yeah, yeah yeah exactly if we go back to a point you said earlier, you talked about the external rotators uh, of the shoulder and then being used as a decelerator. Um, you mentioned the external rotators quite a bit in your book, but I just want to dive into your, uh, I suppose, 
assessment or how you provide an injury risk profile to a combat athlete? Um, so I use, I use, obviously it's uh, not so much when it's an online, online client, but if, when it's someone in person, I do use the test that I've got in my book for testing a one RM on the biochromial bench press and also, um, a flexion exercise like a chin up and then work out what they can do for the external rotation. So on the biochromial bench, it's, uh, it's for one, for trap. I think I've got trap three on there, on there, which works, uh, the very low, low fibers of the trapezius and, the um, scapula stabilizers and also the external rotation on the knee with a dumbbell. So one of them, I forget which is which, it's 9.8% and the other one, it's 10.2% of what you can do for one RM on a biochromial bench. And if you're balanced, you should be able to do with that weight. You should be, so I roughly, I just say I round it off to 10%. So yeah. if you're balanced, you should be able to do eight quality reps with 10% of what you can, one uh, RM on a biochromial bench. But nobody's ever, nobody's ever um, able to do it. Because every, everybody, even if even if you even if they're athletic, they always have weak external rotators. And some people's obviously might be weaker than others, but no ones are ever uh, the same as what they should be. And usually, if someone's balanced, then, which no one ever is, then they're usually really, really weak. Yeah, and that that almost brings on to another point. Um, I think it was the UKCA conference a few years ago, and I said to this speaker. Think his name, I think it was Michael Joff, but he said if he had a choice between being balanced and being strong and asymmetrical, he would always pick being strong and asymmetrical because being weak is such a bigger risk factor to injury than it is to be weak. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it's a, and it's a lot easier to correct a few imbalances than it is to make someone go from really weak to really strong. And when you say um, biochromial bench, I have seen it in your book, but I'll be damned if I can remember. Do you, what? What is, is that? A special bar? Is that a type of grip? No, it's um, it's a normal barbell, but um, and you the grip is kind kind of similar to what would normally be called close grip bench press. Except when bodybuilders do close grip bench press, they normally go really narrow. It's uh, level with the AC joints of your shoulder. So it's as though if you put your arms straight out in front, that's the normally the, the grip. And it's because if you was throwing a punch or even pushing somebody, that's where your arms would be. You know, if you was throwing a punch, it wouldn't be, I mean, obviously a hook's different, but it wouldn't be straight up. It wouldn't be like this. It would be from the shoulder straight ahead, you know? That makes sense. That makes sense. And in terms of, uh, in terms of asymmetries then, you, again, you mentioned your book that it's natural. You're going to get asymmetries with Southpaw or Orthodox fighters. Uh, yeah. My first question is, uh, how do you assess for asymmetries? And my second question is, at what point do you determine that an asymmetry is not productive to sports performance or injury risk? Because obviously there's going to be a level of asymmetry and there is a danger if we go too far to trying to quote unquote fix it, we might actually limit performance. So how do you determine when it's a problem? And if you have determined it's a problem, how do you go about addressing that? So um, if it's someone who's top level, then obviously they're going to have a, they're going to have asymmetries. But if they're top level and they're not in pain and they don't get injured because of their imbalances, 
then there's not really much point in trying to fix it, you know. Um, sometimes the imbalances are caused by the sport and because they're so good at it. So in that in that way, I wouldn't try and fix it. But someone can still be top level and be, uh, be in pain all the time, and that's because of an imbalance, so then you'd want to fix it. Or even somebody who gets injured all the time. So I remember um, I was doing a sports massage course years ago, and there's a guy teaching on it, and he was talking about Ryan Giggs. And at the time, Ryan obviously was at United, and he was always having uh, hamstring injuries. And he's saying when he'd seen him in person and worked with him, Ryan Giggs had massive quads and no hamstrings. So that imbalance caused him to have so many injuries, you know? So, so if I was, so say if I was working with a top level foot, I know we're talking about fighting, but if I was working with a top level uh, football team, so say if, for me, City and Liverpool tomorrow. So for me, City are a lot better team than Liverpool, but I think it's quite obvious that Liverpool's strength and conditioning is a lot better than City's because the amount of injuries that City get it just makes it look like whoever's doing their training, obviously those the people who are doing their training are going to have access to the best stuff. They're going to be well qualified, but it's not, the priorities shouldn't be the same for everybody. So as in most sport, you want to make people stronger and faster. If you're working with like uh, somebody like Sergio Aguero, there's not going to be much benefit to making his hundred meters a 10th of a second faster or making him become and uh, being able to jump an inch higher. Where you're going to get your benefits there is making him more injury resistant. And that comes from uh, fixing imbalances. So you can't do anything about an injury in football if it's extrinsic. So say if it's a collision with a player or you get kicked or a collision with a post or you get flipped up in the air and come down, land on your neck or your shoulder or something. That's something that you can't uh, foresee and do anything about. But if your job is running and jumping, and you shouldn't get injured doing that. So if you're a football player, you shouldn't get injured running or jumping or even kicking a ball because that's what your job is. That's So if you do just those basic things without any kind of collision, then you're not conditioned enough to do the sport. You're not fit for function. I, I can't even remember what your question was. The question was, uh, <laughs> I, I was enjoying that rant, to be fair. Um, I mean, just slightly off topic, it, I mean, I tweaked my quad a few weeks ago just by pinging a ball back to a student. I was like, wow, I'm conditioned to squat and deadlift and bench and sagas all plane, but I'm not conditioned for an explosive single leg movement. Um, but that's a story for a different day. No, the question was, um, so you already answered part of the question in terms of how do you determine if it's an issue? Uh, you mentioned, for example, if they're not in pain and they're at the top level, then maybe it's you know not worth uh, too much time in trying to quote unquote fix. Um, actually, you know what? No, I think you've, uh, I think you've answered the question. I guess, I was kind of leaning towards whether there was any assessments that you do or whether, for example, if you've got, I don't know, left leg strong, X amount stronger than the right, whether that then changes how many repetitions you do on each side or whether you pick specific exercises. Right. Um, Yeah, I mean, at first I like all unilateral stuff, man, because everyone's going to have imbalances and, and unilateral stuff fixes imbalances. So, and normally... I would say um, the dominant leg, so let's say we're talking about lower body, dominant leg tends to have stronger hamstrings and glutes and non-dominant leg uh, tends to have stronger quads. So you would normally say to somebody, you're going to train your non-dominant leg first and then you train your dominant leg when you're a little bit more tired 
and then it should be even. But I was tested. I've got. Uh, have you seen the treadmill called uh, the High Trainer, the ATP? No. So I've got. Uh, so I've got one of those treadmills, and it tests. And I put a guy on it who I trained to his uh, Jiu-Jitsu World Title, and I put him. I put him on the treadmill, and it it measures. Not only how long it takes you to get to peak power, but it also shows you the difference between one leg and another. Yeah, and his his non-dominant leg, so what we would have thought was his weaker leg, was twice as powerful as as his dominant leg. So that kind of made me have a, a a good think about that. And if I next one when things are back to normal and I'm getting top athletes at the gym, that's probably how I'm going to distinguish how I do a difference between strength for each leg rather than just estimate that the non-dominant leg is the weaker one. Yeah, and uh, even from, for example, some of the papers I was looking at uh, when I published my uh, master's dissertation, even something as simple as finding out what the dominant leg is, is is such a grey area. Like, for example, there'll be, if you find the dominant leg in terms of which can produce the most force versus which leg likes working at higher velocities, even then you'll get a difference. You'll even, like as you've kind of alluded to there, you might have an athlete who, I don't know, is right-legged, 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 right-legged is their dominant leg, and they get injured and then the left one takes over. Or even in uh, Sophia Nymphus's work where she presented a case study of a female athlete who blew their right ACL. And then when they looked at the 505 change of direction, they found she did an, an outside plant on the left leg. And then when she was meant to change direction on the right leg, she did an inside plant on her left leg. So basically she took more weight through the left leg on both changes of direction, even though in theory you would look at it and be like, that's a left leg change of direction. That's a right leg change of direction. So it's, right. it's so easy to think, well, they kick with this leg. Therefore that is their dominant leg. I mean, even myself, um, my preferred kicking foot is my right foot. But if I do any demonstration of single leg work, it's all on the left leg because and my theory is, and whether this is true or not, I don't know. But when you kick so much with your right foot, obviously you've got a harsh braking force on your left leg. So the left leg gets used to the stability task because it's got yeah. you falling over. But again, whether there's yeah. research in that, I'm not sure. But it's so easy. No, no, I agree on that. Yeah, because you always use your non-kicking leg to plant. So your quads work as brakes to stop you. And also because you use the what, what we're calling the dominant leg to kick, then you spend more time when you're on one leg on the non-dominant leg. So yeah, I always find, I find with everybody that what I would call the non-dominant leg, so the one that they wouldn't kick with is always better for single leg stuff. Like especially stuff like uh, split squats and step ups, stuff like that, where you needed to be a little bit better at balancing because they're used to spending more time on that one leg than on the other. Yeah. And I think there's a massive as well as the physical side of things, there's a massive skill acquisition uh, component, which is also easy to overlook as well. Yeah. Um, in terms of just the last couple of questions on psychology, just because I think it's topical and interesting, and then uh, we'll wrap things up. Uh, something that's topical at the moment is the amount of excuses that Deontay Wilder has since come out with. Um, so I think it's just a fun discussion point. Uh, in your book, you mentioned several psychological theories, uh, including uh, Viner's attribution theory. Um, do you think there's any any sort of benefit in terms of, as a fighter, trying to find an excuse, even if the excuse isn't valid, from a sense of trying to psychologically protect yourself from 
having to admit you lost to the better man? Mm. Well, Deont- the problem with Deontay Wilder, the things that he's coming out with is that they're so ridiculous, you know? So he's, he's, I understand what he's doing. He's trying to um, convince himself that he just didn't take such a beating because he's nowhere near as good as Tyson Fury, you know? So he's trying to come out with things, but it would be easier for him if, and he, obviously it would be less embarrassing as far as everyone else goes, if he had a, a reason like, I don't know, he had a hand injury two weeks before or he, he had the flu the week before or whatever, that would be a lot better than all the, the stuff he's coming out with. But yeah, I see why he's doing it. He's just, obviously he needs to think though before he comes out with stuff because it doesn't look good. Um, yeah, um, Sorry, I'm just trying to think. Yeah, I see, I see it, but it's got to be it's got to be little legit things that you can actually believe yourself. Because if he's going from one extreme idea to another about why he lost, then he's just trying to convince himself, and it's it's hard when it's hard if you haven't got a smaller, more viable excuse. You know, like I said, like you was you had a hand injury or or you got a crack rib uh, sparring two weeks before, three weeks before, whatever. It's a lot easier to have that as an excuse than all the stuff he's coming out with. Yeah. And just whether it's a personal thing or for your own athletes, would you rather have a flawless preparation camp and then have to say, look, just lost to the bad man. I can't really have any excuses uh, from a psychological perspective. This is, or have an excuse like a broken rib, broken hand, lose the fight. And then, think to yourself, oh, well, I lost the fight because of that excuse. From a psychological perspective, what do you think is a better of two bad situations for a fighter? Um, I think as a psychological perspective, if you had an excuse for yourself, because if you, I mean, you can have a flawless uh, camp and do well and just get beat by the better by the better fighter, but I mean, then you can look at it, if you're, if you're positive and your team's positive and you still did well, you can look at it and see if you have a rematch, what you can look at improving or what the other person was doing that you can take advantage of. But there's also the other side of it. It's like, you know, when people say, if you punch someone in the face as hard as you can and they just smile at you, then it's time to run. Um, if you look at it like you had a flawless camp and did really well and you was nowhere near as good as the person, then that could be a bit um, psychologically damaging in a way. Because uh, a mate of mine, he had his uncle, this was years ago, he was a pro boxer and he thought he was going to go on to become world champion and all that. And I think, if I remember rightly, his record was he'd had 22 fights and had 22 wins. And he, but he so happened to fight an up-and-coming uh, Sugar Ray Leonard. And he was, he was so outclassed that he retired straight away, you know? So he went from becoming like that he was going to, that he was 22, 22 wins and unbeaten and thinking he's going to become a world champion to straight away coming up against someone that made him realize that there's no way that he's, he could ever be the best in the world. And then so he retired straight away and his wife said to him, now you can concentrate on being a good wife and a good father. And then he went, <laughs> you know, so it could be psychologically damaging in that way if you know everything was perfect and you was nowhere near as good. But I guess it depends how easily you get beaten. Yeah, and I think for me, like I think mental strength in terms of combat sports is almost a bit of a buzzword. But I think if you, for example, had a flawless camp, trained as hard as you could, got beaten by the better man and knew it, but then was somehow still absolutely convinced in the rematch you would win, that for me is someone who's psychologically strong. 
Because yeah. to be able to flip that switch, even though all logic says you couldn't have beaten said other person, um, that for me is uh, impressive. Yeah, 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 exactly. And I mean, and it all depends how you get beat. So if you get if you get banged out cold, then that if you ever watch fighters who get knocked out, they might have a really good career beating everybody, and then they'll get knocked out, and then after that they get start getting knocked out by everybody because they're actually going in, even if even if they're not aware of it, subconsciously scared of getting knocked out. Whereas bef- before that, they just imagine that they're going to be doing the knocking out, that then that it can't happen to them, you know. So um, the only person who I know who's been knocked out like that more than once and has been really good afterwards, the only person I can think of is Pacquiao. And uh, one time I was at a, a party and I was sat next to Freddie Roach and we was talking about stuff and he was saying about, because he was a pretty good boxer as well before he was his trainer, and he was talking about when he was young, he didn't think he could get knocked out and then he got knocked out and after that, everyone started knocking him out and he was talking about himself, you know? So I think there's a big difference between getting beat on points and getting knocked out. Yeah, it's interesting because Pernell Whitaker, I'm paraphrasing one of his quotes here, but he said he would much rather school someone to the point where they didn't land a glove on him and he'd win by decision just so that he knew the other fighter knew that in their head there was nothing that they could have possibly done. Whereas if he caught them cold in the first round, obviously he wasn't that kind of fighter anyway, but he said, if I catch you cold in the first round, you can just try and say it was a lucky punch. Whereas if yeah. you get schooled for 12 rounds, can't land a glove, then psychologically you're just ruined. Oh, yeah. Like all the, like all the fighters who've retired on the stool fighting Lomachenko, you know? It's supposed to be elite level and they have a chance of beating him and then they just get so outclassed that, that they know that they've got no chance against him. But, um... Fuck, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> yeah, go on. Um, no. <laughs> no, it's a good tangent to go down. I was just thinking of Nicholas Walters being a prime example of that. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I was gonna, I was gonna say something else, but yeah, Walters definitely. You could, but obviously Lomachenko's different altogether, isn't he? Yeah, it is. It'd be interesting, ironically, to see what happens. Uh, see what happens with him after the Lopez defeat. Yeah, it's hard for him because. Because he didn't really, even though he knew Lopez was good, he obviously didn't take him as a serious threat because he, he didn't want a, re- a rematch clause. But now he needs the rematch clause, but he's not going to get a rematch because why is, why is Lopez going to give him the opportunity straight away of beating him? Because uh, Lomachenko will be a lot better prepared for the next one. And then by the t- if, if Lomachenko does get a rematch, because well, what's Lomachenko now, like 32 or something? If yeah. he does get a rematch, going to be 33, 34. So he's not going to be as good as he is now anyway. Yeah, and that's another thing about mental strength in boxing. I think it's so easy. You look at fighters, and you, like, for example, Michael Hunter saying he fights someone for free, which, again, different story in itself. But you think, for example, oh, if you're that convinced you'll beat someone, then surely you shouldn't need X amount more money to show us that you can. But then on the yeah. flip side of it, as you said, being able to separate your business brain from your boxing brain and thinking, oh, well, I'm 100% sure I'll beat them. I also still want a rematch clause. Yeah, 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 exactly. Oh, and that's what I was going to say. You made me think about, because when you were talking about, um, you say Penel uh, Whitaker um, wanted to just beat somebody and show him how much better he is. Um, so that, I remember that happened with Cesar Chavez. And uh, do you remember Macho Camacho? Yeah. Uh, and he was talking shit a lot about Cesar Chavez. Obviously, the dad, not Cesar Chavez Jr. And, <laughs> and then he purposely 
when he could have... Cesar Chavez was unbelievable, even though Camacho was good. So even though he could have beat him quick, he said his goal was to give him the beating of his life for the whole fight, rather than actually just finish him quick. He wanted to get beat him like a little bitch for, for his big mouth. <laughs> <laughs> I could, I mean, it's one of those I could talk about the uh, psychology of boxing for hours, but I think we'll end up doing a part two, three, and four if I carry on with this, right? Um, if you could give the, if you could give the listeners one key take home for this podcast, um, whether they're boxing coach, strength and conditioning coach, whatever, what would that be? Um, I say. It's it's different in England because England's England's and the England Eastern Europe I should say Britain Eastern Europe um, and other countries like Australia they they're quite open to having strength and conditioning and, and training the athletes like top athletes from any other sport whereas the US is a bit more old school even though England is as well in in some quarters but a bit more old school so I would say you need to be open to what's going on in in regards of progress with training athletes you can't just be like this is what i did when i was when i was a fighter and this this is what my trainer showed him and it was what showed me and this is what he did 50 years ago and all that you got to be open to the way things are going and because the in america the the um the lack of the openness to to do new things is what's holding them back because really no one else, hardly anywhere else should be able to have any belts. With the, If America was on the training thing as much as everyone else was as far as strength and conditioning, they should have all the belts because they, they have a lot of really top fighters but because they're so far behind with the strength and conditioning, then it means other countries are able to have the belts just because the training's better. You know what I mean? So be open. And also, um, if you're looking for a strength and conditioning coach, like I said before, rather than look for somebody who's just got who's got experience training fighters you need to look at somebody who's actually qualified to make people stronger and faster and also like i said i would look and see who who somebody has trained to a title in another sport because that means they they know what they're doing and they're not just someone who's been lucky enough to get a job at a fight gym yeah i I always think it's ironic because i think if you if me personally i would know i was working with a reasonable strength conditioning coach if they showed me programs from different sports and about eighty percent of the stuff was about the same. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because it's all, you always need that strength and athletic base, and then from there, then you get the little tweaks to make the individual, or the individual as as them, or the individual for their sport, um, better. You know, but you need that, like you say, you need that base of just being able to make someone more athletic, which comes from being a strength and conditioning coach, not just who you work with. Absolutely. I mean, I remember that said on previous podcasts when I was with uh, GB Boxing Paralympic Table Tennis and I'd question the head coach. And I'd be like, oh, how's the bench press helping this player around the table or how's the squat helping him in the ring? And he said, look, and I actually remember one of the GB Boxing technical coaches saying to him, oh, you work with loads of sports. Like, what's the difference between this strength and conditioning coach, that strength and conditioning, uh, that strength and conditioning for that sport? And he said, no, 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 the, the gym is for getting strong. We'll keep them in the sport. They'll tolerate the training and then they'll get better. It's like the gym is right. getting strong and then the sport can take care of itself. And I thought that sums it up for me. Yeah, 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 exactly, man. And yeah. if, if you could observe one other coach working with their athletes, be it a technical coach, strength and conditioning coach, or maybe someone completely out of the sporting field, uh, who would you want to observe and why? Um, 
obviously there are a lot of top guys I would, uh, in strength and conditioning. And for me, it would need to be a strength and conditioning coach rather than any kind of a technical skill coach. Uh, I would like to, if I could, spend some time uh, with Dan Baker, watching and learning from him. And also there's a guy on the East Coast of the US, um, writes for, for Simply Faster. Uh, do you know him, Cal Valley? Yeah. Yeah, I would like to uh, spend some time with him. I actually messaged him a while back <coughs> and we were communicating in regards to me going over there for a few days. But because of everything that's happened, that's kind of uh, gone well on the back burner. But them two are the... Uh, off the top of my head, those two are the ones that I would come up with now and that I would like to spend time with. Solid choices. And if you could uh, have one recommended resource, be it a book, a podcast, uh, an app? Um, I'd say the uh, the Strength and Conditioning Research Review that's done by Chris Beardsley. Do you know that? Yeah, yeah. And even his, even chucking in his book, um, Strength is Specific, is that's one of my favourite reads because there's so many so many phrases banded about in strength and conditioning, which kind of become just accepted because a lot of high level people have said them. Um, and he digs into the research behind them and says, maybe they're like, they, they hold weight, but to a certain extent. Um, but yeah, if you're looking to understand more about sports specificity or specific strength, then I would highly recommend checking out that book. Um, I mean, shameless plug, but I've done a review of it on YouTube if anyone wants to save themselves five quid, but it's 100% worth the uh, the investment. Nice one, man. I'll have to have a look at that as well. And uh, finally, where can people uh, reach out to you? Um, all my stuff on the internet is all under, under my name, just Yaz Park. Uh, I don't use any kind of weird, like names that people use you know and you don't know who they are so everything uh my uh website is coachyazpar.com and all my social media stuff is just my name as well perfect and i will pop a link to your book in the show notes so people can check that out as well thank thank you very much for your time yes no problem man thanks for uh, inviting me on and it's been a been a pleasure thank you very much Thank you for listening to episode number 33 of the Platform to Perform podcast. If you've enjoyed it, I'd be really grateful if you could share the podcast and leave us a review via your preferred podcast platform. If you want to go one better than that and support the podcast, you can go over to www.patreon.com forward slash Todd Davidson P2P coaching. By signing up, you'll receive exclusive access to the educational strength and conditioning content that I've been putting out for the last few months including a seven-week conditioning block, uh, Corona Conditioning, uh, Bodyweight Basics Program, and Bodyweight Size. There's also uh, Calisthenics Kids Lessons designed to improve strength, confidence, and movement skill in children, and tons of other content that you'll receive in exchange for supporting the podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll catch you again in the next episode.